And so if I had a shotgun and I had a paper plate on a wall 15 yards from me, I don't know how quickly shotgun blasts get big, but I'm assuming 15 yards is enough. It starts to get sizable. And I said, hit the paper plate. Well, you would aim at the dead center of the paper plate because that's going to give you the most chance of actually hitting it. Now, if I put your mom on the left side of the plate and said, hit the plate, but don't hit your mom, you would aim right of it and you would still have a decent chance if the right pellet came out of hitting the paper plate, but we for sure don't want to hit mom. Today we are joined by Scott Fawcett. Scott is the founder of Decade Golf, a course management system that takes PGA Tour scoring statistics and shot distribution patterns and combines those in order to determine the optimal target while playing golf. Scott originally put these concepts into play in 2014 while caddying for Will Zalatoris in the Texas Sam. Will went on to win the Texas Sam that year, and Scott went on to refine those concepts into the decade that we know today. We appreciate you taking the time to join us, Scott. Um, the beginning of every episode, we kind of go through how people got into golf. And so why don't you walk us through like how you got into playing golf in the first place before playing college and then professional, and then now you got a decade. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm probably a pretty unique story, really. I'm actually like the poster boy of a student I would be looking for now. Like I'm, a, I'm 6'1", 220. I'm a pretty big dude. And as a result, in 1986, I was a giant in junior golf. And so I really didn't specialize in golf almost until I got to college. I mean, I, I started playing more and more in ninth grade, but my dad was a good player. I would think he hovered between a two and a plus two for, you know, the better part of my junior, uh, my, my younger days. So I would go out once a month and just kind of tinker around with him, but I definitely wasn't excited about golf. Um, and then once it became clear, I didn't like getting hit in football. I started playing more and more golf. And then, uh, like I say, finally specialized into college, but then it's just interesting. Like, and the reason I say I'm like a poster boy for what I teach is I don't want the junior golfers to ever think I'm saying they're dumb. That's not the case, but your brain hasn't fully finished developing until you're 25. Like this is a problem for guys all the way through college. Girls are smarter than us. So they get a little more mature quicker than us. Thank God. Um, keep us in, keep us in line. <laughs> but, uh, I, I just, I, I went to Texas A&M and I played for about two and a half years and I, I didn't play my last 15 months cause I broke my leg. I, I lived with some guys on the basketball team. I broke my leg playing basketball with D one college basketball player. Shockingly, that was a bad idea. And so by the time I graduated and turned professional, I mean, I bet you I hadn't played in 30, 54 whole events in my life. So I just didn't have any experience. And that's when I say the prefrontal cortex, like that's the part of the brain that helps you make good decisions. And it, it takes all of the other areas of the brain and it, it synthesizes all of the information, all the inputs into a, a, a good decision. But you're just not even, I don't care how smart you are, you're actually not capable of making good thought out decisions when you're young. Um, trust me, my twenties is a poster child for that, uh, that statement. So really again with decade, what I just, I don't even think that I realized it at the time, but what it does is it just makes a, essentially a perfect decision for you, whether you have an emotional tantrum or not. 
And that's, again, really what the junior golfers out there need is just a system to make good decisions. Even if you get all pissed off and distracted, as long as you can just give me 20 seconds to think through four different inputs, you're going to make a good targeting decision at a minimum. So we're going to remove the emotion. And it's funny because I've had a, you know, a couple of different announcers give me a hard time about different stuff, but one of them gave me a hard time saying, I played better when I was emotional. I'm like, that's not possible. You played worse when you weren't emotional. Like you can't play better than you are. That's how good you were. First of all, if he's even right, that he actually played better. Um, and just so much of it is just trying to override that, that short circuit we all face far too often. Beautiful. When it comes to decade, let's dive a little bit into that. Tell us about how uh, you sort of found or created decade and uh, your learnings along the way. So, you know, it was really back. I played professionally from 1996 through 2002. And, you know, I did good. I won on the Hooters tour, which are 72 whole events. And, you know, I, I, I won a decent amount, but I was definitely never just consistent. And I always blamed it on just a pretty bulky putter. But, you know, honestly, now that I know what a yip feels bad, like, unfortunately, as a 49-year-old, I now know I did not have the yips in my 20s. And really, as long as you don't have the yips, it's almost impossible to be such a bad putter you can't compete as long as you're focusing mainly on your speed control. So... You know, a lot of this for me was just in 2002, I quit playing professional golf and I started playing a lot of poker. Um, and that was honestly when I started, even though I've got a pretty extensive math background, I had never really thought of golf as a math game, but then playing more and more poker and you've got bad beats and you've got all kinds of nonsense that you just have to withstand or you will just keep going broke. You learn quick, like it's just in your face. And again, I don't know why it wasn't in my face with golf. Like it's in your face. Hey, this is a bad idea to get this pissed off, quite obviously. But until you're actually just sitting there straight up losing money when you go on tilt, you don't really put it together as easily as you as I think you should. And so here's starting to play a lot of poker. It's where I met Chris Como was playing in an underground poker game here in Dallas back in 2004 or so. And so then I started working with him on my golf game and I got to where I was playing pretty good and I had a buddy ask me, he's like, why are you playing better now as a 35 year old amateur than you were as a 25 year old professional? I said, honestly, cause I'm thinking of golf as a poker game. And so I, even though I wasn't necessarily doing like actual math on solving course management yet, I was just using the psychology of poker and applying it to golf. And then once they started releasing the strokes gain statistics in 2011, I was writing a post on an online poker forum called two plus two. And I, I literally just wrote a post in, in May of 2011. that was just titled as drive for show putt for go really true. And that was where the first place I'm, I'm like, it was bad math. I was just summing top tens. Like it was, it was really unstructured bad math, but you could see the wheels starting to turn. And that's the whole deal where it's funny. Like, Again, I catch enough grief for people like, it's all obvious. I'm like, it's obvious now because of the way I laid it out for you. Even I'm a pretty smart guy that's pretty good at math and pretty good at golf. And even still, when you watch me connecting, starting to connect the dots in these threads, you can really see, like, it's just not obvious. Um, and so then a lot of catting for Zalatoris then in 2014, the, the threads started in 2011 with, with, you know, actually thinking it was a math game. And then once they released the entire strokes came statistics catalog, I was like, dude, all I've got to do is quantify the size of shot patterns. I know the resulting strokes the whole out. Like I can solve, this is a pretty, this is what's funny when I'm speaking at places like MIT and Wharton, it like sports analytics conference. I'm like, I did a bunch of weighted average math, man. Like it really, it's not impressive at all. Um, it's actually embarrassing whenever you're speaking in a place like that, how basic it is. 
But also then at the end of the day, it's just knowing what I sucked at and then assuming I'm not a unicorn and then helping people dodge the same bullets. I mean, that's really what it is at the end of the day. So for someone who doesn't know what decade is or isn't familiar with actually using it on the course, kind of walk through how one would um, calculate a decade target and actually use that in their in their game. The, the main thing that I think decade has accomplished, like there are a few of the old cliches that are just wrong, but if there's one that is wrong, and this is a really difficult one to contend with because you hear Tiger say it constantly is, I missed it in the right spots this week. And that's really not what course management is all about. It's you don't, you don't control where your misses go. Well, you do control where your misses go, but you control where your misses go by aiming it appropriately. And so decade really takes, you know, the, the variables of any, question you know without you know the, the the calculus of it is how long is the shot what are the weather conditions what are the course conditions and what are the hazards surrounding the greens there's literally nothing else to a golf shot than that like if i ever write like four books along the same subject be like really you're just trying to make money here by making people buy another book there there is nothing more to it than that and so really what decade does is step one i mean decade is an acronym step one d distance how far is the shot that's the that's the spot where we're going to start choosing our target the longer the shot the bigger your shot pattern the more i I hate the word conservative um but the more towards the middle of the green you need to be aiming and and again another thing that the the traditional playing lesson advice kind of gets wrong is this just well when in doubt, aim at the middle of the green. Like the middle of the green is very often just as bad or worse than aiming directly at the pin. You're too often giving up proximity. You're just giving up too much by just defaulting to the middle. So how long is the shot? And I give you different percentages. So if you're a good player and you're 160 yards, you want to use 5% of the length of that shot. So 160 yards. 5% 5% of that is eight. You just divide the hundreds and tens digit by two. And so you want to be aiming at least eight yards from any edge. And I know this, this is a really difficult thing. Don't worry, juniors, if you're at home, like, like what the hell is this guy talking about? This is a hard thing to, uh, to translate just verbally. The, the app does a much better job of teaching you this, but we want to start with aiming at least five to 7%, depending on your ability from any edge of the green. And then you want to look at the surrounding hazards. So if the pin is four yards from the left edge, I don't really care what's right of the green. I want to know what's left and how bad is it? A lake? Really bad. Golf balls are expensive and lakes screw up your score. So we want to be more conservative when it's against the pin is tucked close to a lake. All the way down to if it's just like fringe fairway run up and it doesn't really run away from you like Pinehurst number two would, then that's a spot where we want to get more aggressive. And so again, rather than thinking, where's the spot to miss it? The real question of course management is how much do I not want to be short-sighted? And so then based on that, the length of the shot, what the short-sighted miss is on this given shot, and then how windy is it essentially? Those are really, that's, that's really all that goes into the decision. There, there's a lot of other artsy things like we've got to have an angle here, or I need, you know, I fade hundred percent of my shots. Well, I need to draw to this back left pin to get a look at birdie like, I doubt you need to look at birdie here. Let's just hit the green and two putt and move on. Um, and, and again, that's where it's so hard because people think I need to shoot low in order to win. And in order to shoot low, I've got to make birdies. And it's like, no, to shoot low, you need to avoid bogeys far more than you need to make birdies. I don't care what the winning score is. And so really it's just like all these just different mental baggage 
thought loops we get into that's just like that that's i see what you're saying but that's not really relevant to to the actual decision so we're just trying to really distill everything down to what are the relevant inputs to the decision and then what do we do from there i like what you said as far as um you know the the math was embarrassing to a degree uh and you say oh it was it was kind of obvious or people say it's kind of obvious and to that i think you would say and at least i say is like there are still people out there who don't realize it. There's still these like these tropes exist and they're going to stay around a long time and uh, probably will make you a well-paid man because all you have to do is go out and repeat uh, what you found over and over. Which and that's really these, like, <laughs> I, I can understand it um, for, for someone like uh, me, I can tell you when I was a junior golfer, like I made it, way too complicated and people look at decade and they say, Oh, this is complicated. This like, you have to do all these numbers at, at its core. Decade is a very simple system as far as like under, understanding what has to go on, which is understanding not that we hit like shots, but we hit, we have a dispersion and we hit it inside this. We have a dispersion pattern. We hit it inside that dispersion. And then based on, um, based on our target, that's where our end result's going to be. And so we kind of work backward um, from there. And, and as you said, figure out, all right, wh how badly do we not want to have X result? And then we adjust our target accordingly. Well, well just, to, just to add on to that real quick, hold, hold what you're thinking there, because I think that an analogy that will help the junior golfers understand what you're saying there is you, you have a shot pattern. So if you hit 50 shots at a, at a white flag on the driving range, that shot pattern is going to look like a shotgun blast. But now the difference is once we get out mm -hmm. on the golf course, rather than all 50 pellets coming out at once, only one of them does, and you don't know which pellet's coming out. And so if I had a shotgun and I had a paper plate on a wall 15 yards from me, I don't know how quickly shotgun blasts get big, but I'm assuming 15 yards is enough. It starts to get sizable. And mm -hmm. I said, hit the paper plate. Well, you would aim at the dead center of the paper plate because that's going to give you the most chance of actually hitting it. Now, if I put your mom on the left side of the plate and said, hit the plate, but don't hit your mom, you would aim right of it, and you would still have a decent chance if the right pellet came out of hitting the paper plate, but we for sure don't want to hit mom. And so that's really what a shot mm -hmm. pattern is. Like, if there's a lake left, we don't want to hit the lake. So we need to aim that shotgun blast sufficiently out to the right in order to miss the lake, and, and, and also one of the main things kids have to wrap their heads kids tour players have to wrap their heads around if a hole has a scoring average of 4.2 and you make a four you gained 0.2 shots so if the goal is to have the lowest score on any given day and you gain a little tenth of a shot here and there well that's a good thing and even if you make a bogey on that hole that had a 4.2 scoring average you didn't lose a full shot you lost 0.8 shots and these are just like they're little psychology tricks that you can play to get less pissed off. And that's really the goal because nothing good comes from emotion. Nothing good comes from getting mad. You know, John Rom, Tim Nicholson, Phil's brother, who was the head coach at Arizona state one time, I, I asked him about Rom and he's like, dude, he plays better when he's mad. I don't know if it's the Spanish in him or not, but I'm like, Man, I just, <laughs> I know what you're saying, but I'll even grant you, maybe he does play better. Is it a very sane and fun way to live your life? Just constantly pissed. And, and it's just not necessary. And those are the things, again, I really want people to enjoy the game and shoot lower scores, and it's just not that hard to do. So carry that on back to where you were. I think that shotgun analogy is just super important for people to understand. No, that's a that's a great analogy, and I think it encompasses uh, everything that you teach really well and simply. 
and what I was going to say too, is like understanding that the dispersion pattern, understanding everything you teach has helped me as an adult. Like part of it is now I'm 27. So uh, that prefrontal cortex is more developed and I can recognize easier than when I was 18, when I'm getting on tilt or something like that. But beyond that, it makes me a lot more comfortable when I hit bad shots. I can look and say like, okay, that was like, that, that's one of those 50 shots on the range that was going to happen. Like, it's not a technical issue. It actually, it helps you like avoid looking yourself saying, oh, I need to work on technique. It's like, oh, that's one of those shots that like is in my dispersion. It could have happened. Like, I just need to be better at target selection, et cetera. When it comes to teaching people, I know you do conferences. I know you explain this uh, to people a lot. What is the biggest thing that they don't understand or what is the biggest revelation to them when they first learn this? You know, Honestly, I just think that how big shot patterns are like, it's just shocking. And then again, this is where it's, it's so hard because typically it's like, I see the shot you're wanting to hit and I agree you can hit it. And this is one of the main things that like college coaches tell me the kids get like defensive about like, when you don't think I'm good enough to hit that shot. I was like, no, I'm just saying you're not good enough to hit that shot consistently enough that it's a good idea. Again, the analogy for that one is if you're playing blackjack and you hit on 18 the entire table is going to freak out when you don't bust, but there's actually a 23% chance you don't bust when you hit on 18. Like it's not, it's not amazing. It's like, Oh my God, you actually did it. But then there's actually still a 30% chance you won't win the hand. Even if you successfully hit on it, like you still might not even win. And so like just by firing directly at a flag doesn't mean you're going to hit it close enough that it actually matters because you have to get distance and direction correct. And unless you hit it inside of like eight or 10 feet, it kind of doesn't matter. You're probably going to two putt it. Um, it's only once you start hitting it really close. I mean, sure, I'd rather you be 15 feet than 20 feet, but it's just not that big of a difference. I'd rather you be 20 feet than 30 feet, but it's less than a tenth of a shot. Um, it's just not that big of a deal once you realize I'm going to be making birdies. Again, I hate saying from luck, but basically the right BB just happened to come out of your shotgun at the right time and or you just happen to hit a putt it's the same thing it's got a shot pattern also the hole just happened to get in the way you know when Zalatoris won his first tournament back in uh, at memphis the putt he made on the last hole it was like a six or seven footer and it barely fell in the right lip people talk about like you got to give like like on number 18 at uh, at tory pines when he didn't make the eight footer to to win People were like, ah, if you just hit that a little bit harder, it would have gone in. Like, maybe, but if he'd hit the putt in Memphis a little bit harder, it would not have gone in. So it's it's like you want to make the hole as big as possible. They were 50-50 putts, and guess what? He's one for two. <laughs> it's, it's kind of the way it works. Um, I get it. it. It would be nice to make 100% of your eight-footers, but you just don't. And, and it's just really understanding those outcomes and then just sitting back and running the script over and over and over again, and then you'll get the results you you feel like you should be getting i want to go back to something that you said earlier and it's that it's something that tiger always said and he always said i always miss it in the correct spot and when i was a junior golfer i read this book called uh i think it was called think like tiger or something like that and that was like one of the main themes of the book is like tiger was like oh i you know i just missed in the correct spot but it was so frustrating to me because i did not understand at all what that meant i was like how can i plan for a miss or you know i guess technically that's that's what that's what i thought he meant by that and it didn't didn't actually click to me what he was talking about until you know i attended your seminar and you brought that that quote up 
I really don't even think he knows what he's talking about when he says that. And again, like I really, I, I say to this day, like if I sat down and had a conversation with him, like you do realize you don't control where your miss goes aside from aiming that shotgun to a certain spot. I know when I was 24 and playing professionally, I heard him say that a million times. And I thought that just meant like mid swing. He felt like, Oh, it's not quite right here. I'm just going to miss it in the right spot. Like, well, if you could do that, couldn't you just fix it and hit it where you're trying to like, the neurons have already fired. You're, you're only getting in your own way by thinking mid-swing, like, oh, no, this doesn't feel good. I'm going to get it back on track. That's just not how it works. And, and I mean, maybe Tiger, Tiger can stop his golf swing mid-swing, so maybe he actually could. But it's just not how it works for us mortals. <laughs> we need to pick a good target and then fire our shotgun as aggressively at that target as we can and sit back and wait out the results. Yeah, I, I just – I didn't – I didn't understand that at all. And I wasn't going to question it because it was what Tiger said. And I, it was just interesting. I didn't either. That's why I tried to do it for 10 years. It's like, <laughs> really hard to do mid swing. I'm going to miss it somewhere else. Like it's insane. I, again, but that's where I always try to, like, I try to be as honest as possible. Like it's not fun sitting on a webinar with, you know, to post a video in my app with 8,000 members. Here's all the dumb stuff I just did at a golf tournament. Like that's, <laughs> really we're learning from you like i'm not trying to say like no this is really hard here's what i'm battling i'm not a unicorn so i bet you are too and then if people can just sit back and objectively look at their own thought processes and decision making process like it's not good <laughs> as one of those members i appreciate what you put out there and everything i use the decade app um and it's a well put together app one of the things i wanted to uh, talk about was when it comes to stat tracking, et cetera, I know the Decade app has its own built-in stat system, or I'll rephrase that, stat tracking system. When it came to stat tracking, when did you start uh, being the, before, before Decade, when did you start becoming the type of guy that records his stats? And then how did you slowly find your way um, to strokes gained, uh, which it sounds like you were an early adopter of? You know, it's funny because I, you know, the main problem I have with college coaches and players is they're like, I can't get my players to take the 10 or 15 minutes to enter their stats. Like I, I don't disagree. It's not much fun, but the thing about tracking your stats is you, you, we all finish every round of golf thinking we should have shot lower. And then most of us, I don't know anyone yet that's, but okay. Now how can I stop doing that? How I want to stop having that feeling. Let's actually sit down after a round of golf and, I should have shot lower because of, well, I missed this eight footer. I missed that. I did this. I did that. Well, the miss eight footer again, that's a coin flip. So you don't get to count that as a, I should have shot lower. I could have shot lower, not I should have shot lower. The I should have shot lowers are, I missed a green with a sand wedge and made a stupid bogey. I hit a chip shot to 18 feet and I didn't want to make a bogey. So I jammed that five feet by trying to make it, missed it coming back and walked off with double. That's the stuff that Decade is trying to find and alleviate. Again, strokes gain is pretty basic stuff. I mean, all the apps out there have it. But what I'll be the first to say, I'm, I think I'm the only person to have a, that owns a stats portal who will also say, you know what? It kind of doesn't really do what it says it does. Using strokes gained against a benchmark, that's pretty a flawed way to go about it, especially off the tee. I just played Q School. You know, I'm a 49-year-old amateur, so take that with a grain of salt. I entered Corn Ferry Q School, and I shot seven under to miss by one, which I'm pretty proud of. But also, my own app had me at plus nine shots, strokes gained off the tee. Like, 
I can assure you I'm not gaining nine strokes against the PGA Tour average on that course. There was no out of bounds. There was no, it was just tee it up and hit it as hard as you can 18 straight times. That's not normal on a, on a tour course. So I'm you, but I'm using the benchmarks from a tour course. Like that's, it's, it's kind of flawed. So really you've got to take the stats from our app, from any of the apps with a bit of a grain of salt. But what decade does that none of the other ones do is we're, we're seeking out what we call the tiger five. How many bogeys did you have on par fives? How many doubles? How many three putts? How many blown easy saves, which we turned into uh, two chips? In Tiger Track, how many bogeys with nine iron or less, which in order to quantify it, we say bogey from inside 150. Those are the five things I'm really trying to help you find because those are the five things that whenever you finish around a round of golf and think you should have shot lower and you're being actually reasonable, it's one of those five. And so that's what we're trying to help you find. Because again, like I tell the story all the time, but my, my I, I shot I shot 67, 62 in a, in a teardrop tour event one time. And the 67, I shot with a double and a triple. And I literally went to the Outback Steakhouse. All I did was bitch about my 67 with my buddies that had both shot like 71. They're like, really don't care about it. I went home that night. I was in the afternoon, morning tea time wave. And I was so pissed off. I didn't sleep a week and got up the next morning and birdied the first seven, lipped out on eight and nine and birdied 10, 11 and 12. I then parred the last six holes to shoot 10 under, went back to my hotel room, took a nap, went back to the Outback Steakhouse with my buddies and bitched out my 10 under. I should have shot 59, like what is wrong with you? But again, I, I say that because we all do that. Think about your best round ever and you'll probably still find something wrong with it but we don't ever put the effort in. And again, circling back to the question was, yes, it takes 10 or 15 minutes to track your stats, but we're going to drive for sure value to you to try to find those, those five mistakes. And so while you may want to go practice your putting for 15 minutes after a round, that may or may not help you. It might make you worse if you're working on the wrong thing, ingraining something bad, but entering your stats and, and watching decade type content, it's impossible for it not to make you better. It can't make you worse. And so it's just this abstract thing where when you're out there practicing and hitting balls and sweating, you feel like you're getting better. But when you're sitting inside and drinking a tea and feeling pretty comfortable, you don't really put it together. I'm actually getting better right now. But again, it's those shots that leave you feeling like you should have shot lower. Those are the mistakes we're trying to improve. And the only way you're going to improve those is by actually thinking about it away from the course where you've removed the emotion nine times out of 10, whenever I do a playing lesson with a kid, I don't even let them play. Like we just walk around and talk about scenarios because I'm like, if I give you a target that's five yards right of a left pin with a seven iron and you hit it five yards right of that, well, now you're 30 foot from the hole. And if you go up there and three putt it, you're going to blame strategy, not a bad first putt. So I just, I don't even want you to see, good or bad outcomes. We're just talking theory out here. And again, there's a lot of room for that and no one actually ever does that. I hear a lot of people talk about, um, and it's really, really popular, like on, at the mini tour or developmental tour level, um, you know, say I would use decade, decades, a good strategy, but in a Monday qualifier, you know, I have to go out there and shoot 63. So I can't afford to play conservative like scott says what would you say to that player i would say get the word conservative out of your head and think mathematically correct and and again this is what i, I have this conversation 52 times a year every single monday basically guys like 
I got to go low. Like if you, if you qualify tomorrow, you're going to call me on Tuesday and you're going to say, I played the par fives. Well, I made two 20 footers instead of a half of a 20 footer. And I didn't make any stupid bogeys. Like that's how you're going to shoot six plus under to win. Like I get it. You, you, David Epstein, the author of the sports gene and range came to my house two weeks ago to, to talk about some new ideas for a book he's got. And he said, he's like, you know what this is, is people just want to have agency over the outcome of any given shot. And if you're not aiming at a pin and you hit it close inside, you're like, eh, that was kind of lucky. Yes, it was. But so was the one that you weren't, that you were aiming directly at the pin that you just happened to hit a good shot. And so really what it is all about is, is avoiding the pedantic mistakes. Again, even if it's a money qualifier, I mean, Bo Hostler's is a perfect example Bo was struggling when he first turned professional. I went out to walk with Kramer Hickok and Spieth and Bo in a practice round at the Nelson. And, and I didn't know, and to be perfectly honest, Bo, in case you're listening, I didn't like you at the time. <laughs> the first time I met him was out in uh, Atlanta at a college event. And he's, you know, he's a funny guy. He loves screwing around. He's just out there like joking around and kind of getting in everyone's way. Like, again, I'm just being honest. That's what he kind of likes screwing around. And so it was kind of pissing me off. Well, later that day, Kramer sent me a text just saying, hey, Bo was asking who you were and if he could talk to you. And I was like, absolutely. And so I went out, you know, he missed the cut at the Nelson. I went out to Colonial uh, and walked nine holes of a practice round with him and talked. And I was like, look, I don't really want you to do anything different this week. This wasn't enough information, but I just want you to be aware of your targets, aware of your misses. Just, just be aware. And he called me on Friday afternoon after, I think he missed the cut by one or two. And he's like, dude, I see it. I see exactly what you're talking about. He came out to Bent Tree, my home course here in Dallas uh, on Saturday. We spent the day together and he called me on Sunday driving to Wichita. So here's a guy that I don't remember how many cuts he had missed, but he was not playing good. And he calls me on Sunday with his caddy and he's like, hey, heading to Wichita for the Monday qualifier for the Corn Ferry event does anything change for money qualifiers? I'm like, no, you know, you need to go shoot six under and that's going to be for you like a top 20 percentile round. It is what it is. There's nothing you can do to force it to happen tomorrow. Do the, just do exactly what I said. Well, he goes out and he shoots 64 and qualifies and then he goes out and he finishes second. So here's a dude. He's like, I'm playing good and I'm just not scoring. Cool. He goes out and shoots 64 to Monday and he goes out and finishes second. And what's funny is this was back whenever I didn't have a whole lot of players at the time. He lost by seven, but he lost by seven to Aaron Wise, who was another one of my players. <laughs> so it's like just unfortunately he picked the wrong week. But the, from there, he's literally just never looked back. He's always kind of struggled with his ball striking ever since his injury at the NCAAs. But the guy hasn't lost his guard or done it. Like he's just played really solid golf and made. 10 million or whatever it is. And Monday qualifiers, qualifiers, none of it matters. I mean, you just, you, you don't have agency over the outcome, even though we all want it. And that's honestly, when I look back at my career in my twenties, I mean, I played the U S open and some corn fairy events and whatever. And I always hated playing with a caddy. And I used to think, I mean, I'm definitely a little bit of an odd guy socially. I used to always think that I just don't do well with being forced to have conversation all day. But honestly, in hindsight, I hated having a caddy because I didn't want to tell him what I was going to do because I knew I probably wasn't going to do it. And then it made me feel like an imposter. And so that's, I, I, again, I'm trying to be as open and objective with that statement. It's not an impressive statement, but that's basically why I hated playing.
playing with caddies is I just knew I wasn't going to do what I was going to say I did. I'm just going to hit this, the tiger nine box drill and all these beautiful shots and shapes and everything. It's like, that's not how it works. It's not necessary. This is going to be a really, really dumbed down version, but um, trying to relate golf to poker. And if you're, you know, if you're familiar, which I know you are with game theory, when you start out in a poker tournament, you're going to start playing. There's 2000 players. You're going to play super, super conservative. You're just going to try to survive in advance. And then once you get to the final table, that's optimal. Are you saying that's what you're going to do? I'm going to say like that would be a relatively optimal strategy. And then once you get, you should be, everybody else is doing that. You should be playing more aggressively when everybody else is playing tight. You should be out there playing aggressively, scooping up chips, not just trying to, you want to get into the money with a lot of chips, not just barely get into the money. So you wouldn't play more aggressive at the final table. You would play more aggressive. The difference where, where, where most analogies don't, carry through from something else into golf it's because you can always impact your opponent's play so if you've got a guy that's in the main event and he's just man i'm in the main event and you just keep putting him all in he's going to keep folding some really good hands so i can impact my opponent's play and again we've now got game theory optimal like again there's a uh, there's a lot more going on in poker than there used to be but as a generic statement you should definitely not be playing more conservative just because you're trying to get through and get to the money you should be playing far more aggressive kind of answers the question but kind of where i was going with that is i think there's a quote with jack nicholas where he was like you know i started out tournaments i played super conservative and then like each day i played more aggressive and like on the back nine at sunday started playing super aggressive do you think there's any truth to that or do you think that's just kind of what he felt because i mean the dude did win 18 majors I think it's probably what he felt. I mean, I, I, I just doubt it. Tiger has said similar things. And I've, again, like, because I'm a lunatic, I've gone through 20,000 of Tiger shots by hand. And it's funny because that's the one way that I can't really sort this spreadsheet that I made is by like, as he's getting in more contention, I just didn't put that kind of detail into it. Um, the project took me four months as is, so I didn't need to turn it into eight months, but I didn't notice anything like that with him. Now, again, he has definitely said that before, but this just gets back to like the, the, the Brad facts and stuff. Honestly, like it just is bravado, macho. I'm aggressive. I want to take ages. I went out and made it happen. Like, no, you didn't. I mean, if you did you do it more often, like it's just, again, it's just not how it works. For people that aren't aware, what is um, what is the Brad Faxon argument? Oh, Faxon and I got into an argument two and a half, almost three years ago now. Um, I was out at the tour event in Scottsdale, the Phoenix Open, and he was on some podcast or something. And he said, you know, whenever I missed a uh, whenever I missed a putt, it, I always had to mark it coming back. It was never it was going by with so much speed that I had to mark the comeback putt. And some guy tagged me and just like, Scott, do you think this is true? And I'm like, no, I don't like. It's- there's no chance that's accurate. And Faxon replied with, so you think you're going to tell me how to putt now? And in my head on the golf course, it sounded funny because it was sarcastically. I was saying to myself, like, apparently. But when you just write the word apparently on Twitter, it doesn't come through very well. Well, Faxon's head snaps, and he's hated me ever since. And But so we just go get the data. And he left, literally left from 16 to 20 feet. The numbers are basically, we, we tried to use 31 inches as being the inflection point where Brad Faxon would have to mark the comeback putt. So two and a half feet. I'm going to pull this up because I don't want to screw this number up. Um, 
Hold on, here we go. <clears throat> he left from 16 to 20 feet, 16% of his putts short. So not only did he have to not have to mark the comeback putt, he left 16% short, almost one in five, one in six. And he only hit 20%, two and a half feet or further past the hole. From 20 to 32 feet, and the reason I use 32 feet is that's the, the inflection point where the, on tour they average two putts to hole out. So these are putts where they average making more than they, they three putt. He left 23% short, one in four short on a putt that's long enough the tour averages one point something. And he only hit 25% more than two and a half feet long. And I'm like, that's just not what you did. I know you think you did. And this is what's hard is I want my players to have that mindset. I want you to feel aggressive, but I don't want you to create a shot pattern that would traditionally be considered aggressive. If somebody said I'm putting aggressively, there's no way you think he's leaving one and four short. And then once you get outside of 32 feet, again, where you should be just hoping to two putt, he left 43% of his putt short and only hit 23% more than two and a half feet by. If you think of like, again, we've got a shotgun blast for shot patterns. But instead of thinking that, now let's think we've got a shotgun blast that's like a normal distribution curve of, of distance control. So if from 32 feet, I'm leaving 43% short, well, I bet I'm leaving a decent amount of those, maybe 15%, two to three feet short, and I'm hitting 23%, you know, two and a half feet to three and a half feet by. I've just got this long distribution curve that I'm centering just barely past the hole. Technically, optimally, he would have been an even better putter if he left more putts short. And yet here he is thinking, you know, just beating the drum that he had to mark his comeback. You're like, actually, you would have been even better probably had you left more short. And again, and you already left a bunch short. That's the thing whenever I heard him say that statement and have seen him double down on it since then, it always it's always confused me because it's one of those statements that like when you think about it, statistically, et cetera, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't necessarily hold water. When you think about, um, the capture rate of the hole, like every, everything like that, it doesn't make sense. So I, I try to ignore those types of things, but it's almost impossible to escape that trope, um, in the golf world. So I, pre I appreciate you, uh, pointing out the obviousness of it. I, 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 but again, I do want to make the point clear that the reason I take that serious is these junior golfers at home, like, if I were in college, high school, or even as a mini tour playing professional, and I had heard Brad Faxon, arguably the greatest putter to ever walk the planet, say I had to mark my comeback putts, I would for sure jam putts in. And I'm like, that's just not mm -hmm. how it works. And it's not what you did. Like if I had done the data and been like, wow, he actually did. But again, I just know he does because what you said <laughs> capture rates. It's just not possible to make that many putts by blowing it past the hole. Again, the, the members only webinar that I was just doing, I was going through Zalatoris's win and his putts. He left it in the third round. He was uh, second or third round. He was plus three and a half strokes game putting. He left a 10 and a half foot putt short and he made a whole bunch from five to 15 feet. But the ones that he missed, he left a 10 and a half footer short. He hit like a 14 footer, six inches long. He hit like a, a 12 footer, like four inches long. He's just trying to lag it as close to the holes physically possible from outside of about 15 feet. And the hole's going to magically get in the way and he's going to tap in a whole bunch. That's what good, that is what mm -hmm. good putting is. It is nothing but speed control. And you're dead on as far as 
uh, what juniors will listen to. I remember thinking I had to fade the ball because Jack Nicholas faded the ball. Like you hear these different things that are said, and as a, as a junior, they're they're confusing. You're like, well, this guy this guy's done this. Like, I'm maybe that's how you do it. I guess like you you have no point like jack like when you're asking earlier about jack's strategy jack also said you know if the pin's on the right i would start it at the middle of the green and cut it towards the pin but i would never miss it right of the pin like there's no chance that's accurate <laughs> otherwise he would have hit 100 percent of the greens in regulation again you have to be able to weed through again I, like i respect jack nicholas quite obviously and tiger and faxon that's some of the best players to ever walk mm -hmm. the planet but you have to be able to dig into what they're actually saying to be like, is that what you did or is that what you think you did? And 99% of the time, what they think they did is not really what they did. Not not with the older guard, the younger guard, they get it. I mean, they, they now understand shot patterns and dispersion and like, that's why you hear them talking about it now. And the older guys are just like, what the heck are you talking about? That's why we're meeting you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some of the some of those things that they say are so confusing. And uh, you actually cleared up another kind of statement that Tiger would always say, and he was like, he's always like, "I peak for the majors," and I never really knew what that meant. I was like, "Well, if I have tournaments that I want to win in my junior schedule, I should try to peak for them." But you know, how do I try to play better four times a year? And you clarified that you were like, "Well, what he's really doing is he's peaking his energy." You know, he's he's scheduling his training to where he has the most amount of energy um, four times a year. His game is ready the week before. And then the week of it is about optimizing energy. And that's that is like Zalatoris when he's doing he's, he'll play for the majors. He'll play just nine holes each day. He's already you know looked at the course on the satellites. Again, I, practice rounds are extremely important. But once you understand how to look at a golf course on the satellites and what you're looking for, they kind of take about two holes to figure out how fast the greens are, how firm the greens are. And aside from that, it's all pretty straightforward. Um, again, once you understand how to use satellites. So it's, it's a, it, exactly what you said. It's about peaking your energy and your, uh, you know, your mental preparedness more than your game. I mean, it's far more about mental preparedness than, than your actual game. Yeah. It's good that you bring up practice rounds because that might be the most puzzling thing that, I experienced as a junior golfer. It's like, what do I do during a practice round? And I would always just go play, you know, all these tournaments and I would just see these kids like chipping around or like hitting extra balls into the greens, hitting extra balls off the tee. And I was like, well, I guess I'll just do, do what they're doing. I'll hit some chip shots over here. I'll hit some putts over here, but there was no like actual method to it. And I even catting for Ash and I noticed that on the corn Ferry tour, people still don't really it's not that they don't know what they're doing it's they don't know why they're doing they what, what they're, they're doing. doing yeah <laughs> there you go you're trying to be nice i'm, I'm clearly a guy that likes let's just call it what it is and then work from there yeah they just again practice rounds historically i remember shoot i remember walking practice rounds backwards because i heard somebody say it one time you just see the course better it's like okay well if that's what we're trying to accomplish then let's just look at it on a satellite where this is a picture of earth and then just start laying out dispersion patterns over it so practice rounds to me you want to go out and play them as aggressive as physically possible off the tee so you want to hit driver everywhere and then you get down there to drum and you're like huh well there's a lake here that's probably not driver we should probably drop back or where this really pinches inward my driver will go it's much easier to hit driver in a practice round and then be like oh that wasn't right and go back and hit three wood it's more difficult to hit three wood and get up there and be like man i wonder if i could have gotten away with driver here 
um, again, that's what the satellite work in advance is for. But then also just once you're out there, you play those super aggressive. And then from there, honestly, just hitting shots into the middle of the green, just so you can see how firm the greens are, how much the ball releases. That's more important than I'm trying to hit it at wherever the, the practice round hole location is. And then once you get up and around the green, like trying to hit a chip shot that you're going to have, like I might have this exact chip shot, good luck. Like you might hit 100 chip shots in a practice round and you might hit the chip shot you're going to have twice and you're not going to remember what it did anyways. What you really want to do is be hitting the most basic chip shots possible. I want to, I, I want this ball that's four yards off the green and the pin is five yards on the green. That is a very generic chip shot I could see on any given hole. I want to see how that ball is going to react on the green, what its release is going to be. So we want to hit a lot of extremely, again, when you finish around a golf and think you should have shot lower, it's because, ah, oh, that's simple up and down. I should have gotten that one up and down. Not the flop shot over a bunker. Like, I don't care. Just don't make double, man. And then once you get the basic chip shots down, then you get into the green. And I've got a, a video in the app where, again, this isn't, it sounds more structured than it is, but it's like start in the dead center of the green with, with two balls three balls and put them out to the corners so you see kind of what the green is doing going away from the middle ish and then once you get them out to the corners then just put back right to front right to front left to back right back to the middle and so you just kind of put it around the clock once or twice and move on like that's we're just trying to get feels of speeds not actual this putt did this there's another guy that's doing some work with tour players out there that i mean i'm sure it's good work and if you're smart enough like a maverick mcneely to actually pull off all this information he's like he'll tell someone like on this putt to the back right pin from the 15 feet in the middle people tend to overread it and maverick will go hit that specific putt and be like okay yeah i see that so we're trying to find specific but good luck without shot link and being really smart like you're just not going to pull that off and so don't again just don't waste your time we're working on speed more than anything and getting a general feel of the green take some notes along those lines but trying to actually say this putt did this it's not gonna not gonna work that way on the topic of putting and speed that's something that again you've helped us a lot and helped me clarify in my head as a kid i used to you know do a bunch of practicing like all sorts of different types of putting practice and uh since i've listened to you and followed your stuff essentially there's Two, ty two types of putting drills I do. One is a simple speed drill that I do uh, just to work on long putts, lag putting. And then the other is just short putts, putts close to the hole. And I know that's something that uh, you talk about. Tell us a little bit about how you view putting practice as far as getting ready to, or not just getting ready for a round, but just practice in general for well, putting. And again, like there's certain things that I, I intentionally say, I go over the top overboard by saying, speed is all that matters in putting like obviously junior golfers need to be working on their stroke they need to be working on their line but when you putt poorly more times than not it's because you had bad speed that day not because you could hit your line relative to your handicap so a 10 handicap is going to have a worse line control than a scratch than a tour player so as i've got here in my studio i mean i've got over here against the wall not that i don't know how much video you guys use but i've got that arc it's nailed into the floor so it is a static environment when i address the arc my butt is barely touching the wall 
so I can feel like I've, 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 I've measured all this out before I ordered this custom well cut mat. So my butt is barely touching the wall. My arc is perfectly in place and I can take my practice strokes. And then when I move in as I would for a normal putt, you can barely see those lines that run the length of that mat, which is almost 30 feet. And so then, so I can work on my stroke with my butt against the wall, because the main thing I'm trying to do is keep my upper body as, or lower body from my sternum down as still as possible. And then, so I'm working on my stroke there, but then once you get out to the course, so yes, work on your stroke, stroke indoors away from the course. And then once you're out at the course, what you're saying there are speed drills. I used to just randomly roll putts all around the green with no real, like, okay, this is a 30 footer. I'm having to hit it X hard. But once you start doing structured speed drills where you're like, I know this is approximately 20 or 25 feet because you've laid out tees and you know the lengths of the putt, you'll start to get a feel for, okay, this 25 footer, I've got to hit this hard. And if you've even got like a certain kind of position, like I, I talk about owning like a, a clock position with my wedge shots, you'll kind of own like 30 feet. And if you can hit a ball like basically 30 feet every time, like a 25 footer is just a little softer and a 35 footer is just a little harder. Like, but you're, you start owning like certain feels and positions and then speed control again, this is where, you know, again, where I lose my mind on announcers sometimes with, with Will, it's just, it's easy to look at his putting strokes, Al Torres, obviously. And it's easy to look at a stroke and be like, that's gross. Like I agree. It's disgusting, <laughs> but he, he's above average to a putter like because his speed control is impeccable and even on short putts we're sure he struggles he's three percent worse from four feet than than tour average like it's just not a big deal it's not ideal and in a, in a utopian world he would be better than tour average but then he would literally be the goat so like the goat only comes around every so often and will's the best ball striker on tour and if he was the above average putter like a top 40 putter like it wouldn't be fair <clears throat> we all have our own challenges his is a little bit of line control but he's got great speed which more than overcomes it so he makes a an above average amount of 15 to 30 foot putts which those are such huge gainers that by being in the 40th or 50th rank on those he gains a whole bunch and if you're you know three percent worse from three to five feet and you have two and a half of those around it's seven hundredths of a shot so he's losing seven hundredths of a shot by not being great from three to five feet. And then he's gaining a boatload by making an extra 15 to 20 footer every other day. It's pretty much simple. <laughs> like, so again, so like, like Zalatoris, again, I just, I, I harp on this speed stuff constantly because nobody goes out there and actually just works on their speed. Again, not with any structure, not like, not like we do with our putting stroke. I need to, you know, keep my head still or whatever the, you know, you, you happen to be working on, but to then just go out and have structure. This is what's frustrating is I have been saying this for five years now. Here's how he does it. And everyone's like, he's a bad putter. I'm like, that's the point. His stroke isn't good. He doesn't have great line control. And yet he was an above average putter on the PGA tour last year because he was second in approach putt performance, which is the average length of your second putt. I've been telling you for five years, here's how he's going to do it. He then went and did it. And people still like talk about a stroke. <laughs> I don't care. It's fine. I love okay. it. It's hard. It's hard to look 
I know it's, I mean, I, I love what he's done um, as far as the approach performance. And one thing I wanted to talk about switching gears a little bit, but still talk about will, I want to talk about the time I, the most impressed possibly uh, at least up there, most impressed I've ever been at a golf tournament performance, a specific instance, like there are cool shots, like Bubba shot from the trees of the masters. Cool. Like, don't get me wrong. Like these shots are cool and impressive. Uh, the thing that I was most impressed this year and for in my most recent memory was will at the PGA championship on Sunday, uh, overshot the green and put it back, uh, essentially like on that cart path behind the green on my part three. And I, I was, I was like in my head, I was watching this and after he hit the, after he had the up and down, like the up and down was great, but just like he went through that process. It took him 15 minutes. And the whole time I was like, how is he like keeping his composure? Like, how is he holding it to get, like, cause it's really easy, especially like I haven't played in a major. I imagine in normal tournaments, you feel a little pressure to move fast. Like you feel these things in a major tournament, you're feeling the pressure of like outcome, like moving fast. And here he's taking 15 minutes. He's just going through his options, slowly, slowly finding the right one. Then he finds the right, then he like makes his decision, does it, place it, gets it up and down. And then mental fortitude that it took, at least from my perspective, be able to do that was like incredible. And I know you caddy firm at the U S junior and you're friends with him. Like, is that something that like he's always had or no. something that you could easily see company or is that something that That's he's developed hundred percent developed. So going back to 2014, when I first started again, like I've known Will since he was nine, he's just a stripe show. We played a lot of golf together when I, I was on the corn Ferry tour while he was a teenage junior golfer. So we played a lot of golf together, but I I'd gone out and watched him play a couple terms, but not anything much. And cause I just was always like, I didn't want to bring more pressure onto him. Cause he honestly just wasn't getting the results he deserved. I didn't want to go out there because I figured he had to be freaking out. I didn't want to go out and watch him play tournaments and make it worse. And so going into the Texas Amateur, you know, again, I was going to play in it myself and, and, and got a quarter zone shot. Guy paralyzed my right arm. That's the whole reason I called Will and was like, let me caddy for you. But, you know, like a, like a postmortem is when a business fails and you're like, in hindsight, what went wrong? A premortem is if this doesn't go well, what's going to go wrong? And so I kind of sat down and did a pre-mortem on if this doesn't go well, me catting for him, why is it not going to go well? And the main things I came up with is I'm going to give him a target that's away from the pin, you know, five yards right of the pin, and he's going to hit a shot and hope he pulls it. So he's not actually playing to my target. That was number one. But then after that, I was like, he's just going to freak out. Like he's just going to get out there and be an absolute wreck. <clears throat> and so I had him read the book, The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin which is definitely what everyone, every kid who's watching this should start with. Um, but then the most important thing, and I don't even know, it's just, it's so lucky how so much of this happened. On number 16 in the practice round, <clears throat> he looked at me and, and, and he said, man, I got a really good feeling about this week. And I literally set the bag down. I grabbed him by the shoulders. I was like, you're going to win this tournament as long as you don't think about winning this tournament. If, if you think about winning this, you're going to cave. Like, it's just, it's too much. And it's, it's useless thoughts. Like I'm going to win or I'm in the right position or what do I need to do? Like none of it's, you, there's nothing actionable in there. 
So I need you just to remain present. I don't need you getting ahead of yourself. And again, like we just had this like three minute conversation in the middle of the 16th fairway. And he even referred to it in one of the quotes. He was like, I've never seen somebody look at me with such conviction that if I just shut up and do what he tells me to do, it's all going to be fine. So essentially I forced him into, I don't want to say meditating, but what I had him do the two weeks leading into the tournament was listen to this song time from the movie inception. It's just this long, slow Hans Zimmer beat. And I wasn't actively like thinking, let's get him meditating. But I was like, I need him to be able to distract himself. If I see him freaking out, I'm going to point at my watch. That means time. That means dude, chill out. I gotcha. I'll tell you exactly what to do on this next shot, whatever it is. And I probably did that six or seven times. And we had like this little joke that we were saying to each other, uh, throughout the, the week of like, did we win yet? Did we win yet? You know, no, we didn't, whatever. And, and then it's funny because the night before he won in Memphis this year, I sent him a text. I was like, look, I know you've been all over this for, you know, two years now wanting and trying to win, but think back to the state am and how all we focused on was not focusing on winning, just hitting shots and then just seeing what the outcome is. Like, try that. And then there's this one page, page 172 from The Art of Learning, that is literally just, it's a full page. It's just one of the best quotes ever. Um, and it's all about remaining present and the, the guy who's going to be able to stand up to the fire of competition is whoever's the most serenely present. And so not getting ahead of yourself or behind yourself, it's the saying, you know, depression, if you're depressed, you're thinking about something that happened in the past. If you're having anxiety, you're thinking about something that's coming up in the future. For the most part, if you're actually sitting there and thinking about what's going on in the present moment, typically you're not being tortured. It's, it's really not that big of a deal. And so when people say remain present, that's what they're saying. There's so much of the stuff people have been saying forever, but it just sounds kind of mystical. But stay, saying, someone saying stay present means don't think and get yourself anxious about what's coming up. Don't get pissed off or depressed about what you've already done. And so that was one of the best things about watching the Masters is the first year when he finished second as a Corn Ferry member, just the announcers were freaking out. Like this kid looks like a grizzled vet out here trying to win the masters. And I was like, that's because this is his first go around, but this is all we focused on. Now that would have been 2021. There's seven years at that point. Like this wasn't an accident and it didn't take no effort. And it is not who he was. He is a guy that tends to get a little pouty, a little bit anxious, a little bit, uh, you know, emotional. And that was the one thing I'm not saying it's gone, but we've cleared up a bunch of it. And that's by being, by being intentional about it. That is really, really good stuff. And I mean, being, um, just present and mindful is probably one of the hardest struggles, but best things that I've gotten out of playing tournament golf is just trying to be more mindful. And I mean, you can't, you can't be too mindful in my experience. Um, one thing I want to, well, but, but, but along those lines is I heard of meditation and stuff in my twenties, but we literally thought tiger was playing golf hypnotized. Like in the 99 us open that I played in the one that Payne Stewart won at Pinehurst, we literally thought tiger was like pocket watch hypnotized before his rounds. And it's like, Oh no, he's actually just playing in a deeply meditative state. And that's from his mom's Buddhist background, his dad's green beret background. Like, it worked. And again, like I see a lot of parents who try the same thing and it doesn't work because they're not delivering the message the same way that I think his mom, as much as anything was with again, all of her Buddhist contemplative background, 
And that was the one thing Tiger talked about after his cheating and everything. There was the, the interview with Tom Rinaldi on the back porch of Lake Nona. And he was like, what went wrong? You know, what happened? He was like, honestly, I got away from my meditative. I got away from my Buddhist principles. And I just started, you know, thinking I should be able to do whatever I want. That again, this is this is something that is structured and organized. And just again, when we were thinking Tiger was playing golf, hypnotized, I didn't realize Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, Pete Carroll, Phil Jackson, Pat Riley, these these guys, they all use a, a guy named George Mumford, who he's got a book called The Mindful Athlete that is definitely worth a read. Um, and then he's got another follow-up like workbook or something that's just different meditations. But when, you know, shoot, even six years ago when I first started teaching this stuff, I was super nervous and embarrassed talking about meditation. I felt like I should be selling avocado and sprout sandwiches out in California while, while talking about it. But now I'm like, oh, you know what? This is what they're doing. This is what the all-time greats are doing. I know for a fact it's what Zalatoris is doing because I'm the one that taught him how to do it. So, like, this is what these – they're not superhumans. Will is just a – Dumbass little kid like any of the other dumbass little kids listening to this. No offense, you're not. <laughs> just He's not superhuman. He's just a dude. He, and you can do this too. Like that's the message. I really just, I really don't want the kids to beat their head into the wall for 10 years when you don't have to. You just need to be able to see, oh, this is what the greats are doing. And now I'm not saying it's fun to go practice nothing but speed control on putting and sit down and meditate and enter your stats. I'm not saying it's fun. But I'm telling you, that's what Zalatoris did to go from 3,300 in the world to number seven on, in the actual world. <laughs> like 3,300 as a junior golfer, June of 2014 to number seven in the actual world rankings is just, it's just insane. Even Scheffler and Jordan and all these other guys that are young tour prodigies, they weren't ranked 3,300 in the world when they graduated from high school. That doesn't happen. This is how it happened. It sounds woo, like woo woo or whatever, but it's actually, you know, super practical. And I mean, I've used all of your meditation uh, resources on the decade app. And I mean, it's like, once again, it sounds like it's going to be something that's weird or like you're going to be feeling weird about it. But I mean, honestly, it's just makes you feel good and it makes you feel relaxed and it helps you perform better. Um, Something that 100%. something that I want to talk about that we haven't talked about before we wrap up is um, just your strategy, your views on driving the golf ball. Um, you know what? Just explain your philosophy on how one should approach driver strategy, and also something I want to touch on with you um, because I've personally I've taken out the three wood because I don't see a use for it. What do you think about the three wood? a use for it i mean i've got a mini driver so i am a huge proponent of the driver specifically hitting the exact same shot over and over and over again and i'm talking even into a 30 mile an hour wind you're not trying to flight it you are just sending it straight up into the wind i don't care if you fade or draw it I, i'm agnostic on shape i do think that with speed fading it is easier but i don't I don't care. Bryson is able to hit a draw with obviously some club head speed, but he's able to do that because he's got such a weak left grip, his, his left hand. So he is swinging as hard as he can and trying to duck hook it as much as he can. And because of his joints being at the end range of motion, because of his grip being so weak, he literally can't duck hook it. 
Um, and so that's what he's, he's, he's actually trying to do. Keith Mitchell is a guy I've worked with for a little bit over a year now. And people say like, Rory's the best driver of the golf ball. Like actually Keith is over the five years while he's been on tour, the guy just drives it well every single year. And last year, starting the year off, I'm like, you drive it well every year. Last year was fourth in strokes game driving. And he hits a fade with every single driver he hits. And if a fade doesn't fit the hole, he hits a different club. And I even thought like, I'll be the first to admit, like, there are times when I'm like, well, you can, you can flight it down a little bit into the wind. And Keith's like, I don't, I hit the exact same shot every single time. So when the Byron Nelson was here in town last year, number nine is a par five. It's got a creek that it's not like it's a long cover, but like, you don't really want to miss it much, especially into like a 25 mile an hour wind. And I was like, I went and hid in the trees, like, <laughs> so he wouldn't see me because I wanted to see him hit that tee shot. I'm like, because he hits it teed up high and hits it. I don't know what his, his launch angle is, but he hits it really high. And I'm like, surely he's going to flight it a little bit into this wind. And he gets up there and just sends this thing straight up into the atmosphere, fading it. And I'm just like, wow. And again, here is the best driver of the golf ball. And he didn't even try to. It's a dog leg left into a 30 mile an hour wind. And he hit a giant cut. Um, I couldn't believe it. And so the real point is like with my seven iron, I can draw, like I fade, I fade all my shots, but if I have to hit a draw with a seven iron for whatever reason, I can move the ball back in my stance, which is going to artificially without me even trying to change my swing, that's going to move my path like six or more degrees right of where it normally is. So if I'm normally again, making up numbers two or three left, just by moving it back in my stance is going to shift my path two or three, right. Now all I need to do is get the club face left of path and I'm going to hit a draw. I can't move my drivers, you know, four inches back in my stance. There's not enough loft to begin with. That's why you see guys like Zalatoris, Keith, DJ, Brooks, all these guys standing up on 10T at Augusta and dropping back to three wood so they can roast a draw because I can move three wood back in my stance. But even more optimally is having what I, you know, this tailor-made mini driver, and my understanding is Titleist has a prototype that's coming out. Even better than drawing a three wood is drawing a mini driver because it is just an easier club to hit, period. It's the same loft as a three wood. It's just a giant 300cc face. It's just simple to hit. And I'd be stunned. We'll see if Zalatoris does or not at the Masters, but I'd be stunned if, if several people don't show up there with mini driver now. Because like, like Will, I took him out a couple months ago. We went out to Dallas National. Because um, I've been telling him about this mini driver forever. I'm like, dude, I just have to see you hit it. And we went out to number two. And I'm like, just pretend. It's a dog leg, right? But I'm like, just pretend we're on 10 at Augusta. And you're hitting a 30-yard draw around the corner. And he hit six in a row that were just mouthwatering. Just these giant high draws carrying 300. And I'm like, that's all I needed to see. Let's go have a drink because it was just ridiculous how easy it is to do. In a three wood, again, these guys are so good, they're hitting it on the middle of the face every time, but it's just a little harder to do than the mini driver. And three wood into most par fives, dude, you don't, first of all, if you hit it hard enough, you don't need three wood into most, but even if you do, I don't, I just need you to not hit a bad shot more than I need you to hit good shots. I just need you to get it around the green. And these guys at that level, can just hit a mini driver almost as good as a three wood off the ground, but there's just things a mini driver can do off the tee that, that a driver can't. So 
the, the nuts of the story is hit driver as far as you possibly can with one shape. If that doesn't fit the hole for whatever reason, hit a different club. The lack of use for three woods, something that I've seen Cooper seen, and then our friends that play on corn Ferry, we're also seeing more and more of that, uh, at least for the most part, every now and then they'll add it in for an event, but it's becoming less and less common. Well, that's exactly what I think people should do is, is have both and be comfortable. Like, okay, mm-hmm. you know what? This week there's two par fives that I'm probably going to have three wood into every single time. And there's not as many holes I need to hit a draw on or, or whatever. Um, so there might be reasons why. I, I, that's ultimately what I will do with my bag. Like as I start playing more is just have both in there and just play with 15 or 16 clubs and then drop out whatever mm-hmm. ones I need to based on the course. That makes sense. Well, and we know you have a stop coming up and we appreciate you taking the time to join us today. The last question that we ask every guest is if you go back to yourself as a junior golfer, what is the one thing you would tell yourself? And then for you, because you also work with a lot of golfers, if you could tell just another junior golfer, uh, just one thing, what would it be? Go listen to this podcast. Is that going to cover five topics? Is that a cheat? <laughs> um, the one thing for me would definitely, it, it's really a toss up for me. What would have made me a better player being less of a lunatic or working more on my speed control and putting. I think they, I think both of those were about a shot to me. Um, honestly, my brain was probably more like one and a half shots. Um, you know, we've got this thing we track in the in the decade app called uh, Dr. Michael Larden's mental scorecard, which is basically just a pass fail. Were you committed to the shot? Um, did you know exactly what you're trying to do with the shot, and were you fully committed to it? And I would bet you, in my mm-hmm. 20s playing professional golf, I, I was probably in the high 80s percentile. I, I don't know; I didn't track it. But based on watching Maverick and Will and some of these other guys, the numbers they started at, and then what they got to, I would bet I was in the high 80s you've got to get that to 95% or better. Like, and again, anyone can do that. It takes effort. Um, I do think that it takes slowing down in practice. My dad used to tell me to slow down in practice, not for any other reason than just slow down. Like if he had told me slow down, because then you're going to be working on your mental game. Um, that would definitely have helped. So for me, it probably would be meditate because that's like the tide that lifts all boats for me. And if it's not that one, then it's definitely just speed control and putting. I mean, but again, it's like, I do hate it because like you asked for one and I'm like, well, I don't have to give these kids one. The, the, the ones are shape the driver one way, work on your speed control and putting, get a meditation practice. It's only 10 minutes a day, do that. And, um, when you pick a target, that's not the flag, actually try to hit it to your target and trust the dispersion of your shot pattern. Like, I hope you guys go buy the decade app, but that's really about all there is to it. <laughs> mm-hmm. How's that for a sales pitch? Well, if they, t- <laughs> that's perfect. If they take at least one of those, uh, they'll be in business and hopefully they take all those. Um, where can people find you on social media? If they want to reach out to you with more questions or learn more about uh, decade, download the decade app, all that stuff. You know, at this point, luckily, if you just go to decade.golf, uh, You'll find the app right there. If you search it in your app store, it's the green decade app. Um, you know, social media, Twitter's a cesspool, kids. Stay off of Twitter. Hopefully Elon Musk drives this thing into the dirt so that way it just goes away. I'm trying to stop over there. So I'm trying to go more to Instagram, which is just decade underscore golf. Um, but really at this point, if you just Google 
decade, you're going to find it. Thanks for joining us today. Please do us a big favor and like and subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts so we can help others learn how to play better tournament golf. You can find us online at thetournamentcode.com, on Instagram at thetournamentcode, and on Twitter at tournamentcode. As always, feel free to reach out to us at those places or email us at daniel at thetournamentcode.com and cooper at thetournamentcode.com. We hope you join us as we continue to dive deeper in what it takes to play elite tournament golf. Thank you.